Hey folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along. I'm the Bad GM himself, Wayne Davis. We're going to build a campaign you can run for your group from beginning idea through final conflict. For the past few episodes, we've been working on a Deadlands Classic campaign, and we'll continue to work on that for the foreseeable future. To this point, we've been focused on creating the things your players will see, the starting town, the player characters, and the first few encounters for the campaign. It occurs to me, though, that while many of you have GM'd before, you've probably never GM'd a Deadlands game. Is it really that different? I mean, in some ways, yes. I mean, we're talking about a radically different system than Dungeons & Dragons, which I'll wager is the game most of you have run previously. For me, that was the hardest part, learning a system that's so different from what I'd played and run for a very long time. It's also been a major issue for me in running the game at present after a decade-long break without it, so there's that as well. I will admit, though, that in some ways it's not that different. At its core, role-playing is the same regardless of the system you're using. If you've got good role-players, they can really help gloss over any deficiencies you've got on your end with running the game because they can take a lot of the confusion away with solid role-play. If you've got a group of murder hobos, on the other hand, you're not getting a lot of help. Fortunately for me, my group's pretty good at rolling with the punches, so I've been okay so far. And yes, I've already started running the game we're building. I know I promised you feedback on what we've done, but I've been holding out for a very good reason. My group only plays every other week, so I figured if we got a few sessions in the bag before I started breaking them down, we'd have a decent amount of material to last us for a while. So I'm not holding out on you, I promise. I'm just making sure you've got everything you need to start running our game before I show you how my group broke what we built. And yeah, they've already broken what we built. Look, I told you I'm not the world's best GM. Okay, so let's get back to the task at hand. I realize that Pinnacle Entertainment Group produced a perfectly useful Marshall's Handbook for you and it gives you some great background you can use for the game. I also realize that the Player's Handbook is a goldmine for the rules of the game. However, as the GM, you can't really be opening pages and flipping around and referring to rules each and every time you need to make a decision. I mean, I have been through three sessions, but I've watched my game table descend into chaos every time I have to do it. So, from me to you, let's cover some things you'll want to make sure you've got noted somewhere for you to use in the game. For the record, if you happen to use a GM screen, this would be a good time to create some pages you can clip to the screen, because what I'm going to give you isn't necessarily the stuff the company prints on their screens. I'm not saying their stuff is useless, I just find I use my stuff a little bit more often. One of the very first things I want to hit on is the colors and number of poker chips you're going to need for the game. I believe that back in the very first episode of this show, I told you you'd need 100 white chips, 50 red chips, 25 blue chips, and 15 to 20 green or some other colored chip. By the way, if these numbers don't match those numbers, use whichever number you want. It, it doesn't matter. I'm going to explain why. For your fate chip box or bowl or whatever you're using, you want to toss 50 white, 25 red, and 10 blue chips into the box. This is the box everybody pulls chips from at the beginning of the game. Wait, what do you mean pull chips? Okay, lesson number one, and it comes directly from page 143 of the Marshall's Handbook, which, as I've noted before, is copyrighted and trademarked by Pinnacle Entertainment Group, just so that I cover our collective butts here legally. 
At the beginning of each session, each player does a blind draw of three chips. The GM also does a blind draw of their own three chips. These are the chips the players will use to do their cool things with, which we'll get into in a minute. The ones you pull are for the bad guys to use to do the same things. So I, I had you buy all of those chips, but you're not putting all of them into the pot. Why not? Good question. Let's see if my answer is worthy. As the GM, you're also going to be awarding chips to your players. If you've been following along as we've put together encounters, you'll note I've suggested you give fate chips to players at certain points. I've also identified the color of the chip you should be giving out. That's what the extra chips are for. If you, as GM, are giving chips to the players, take them from the stacks of extra chips you already have on hand. How you choose to keep them is up to you. You use a chip tray, a sandwich baggie, whatever you want. Just make sure you've got them ready to hand out. White chips are the ones you're gonna be handing out the most, so they're the ones you need to have the most of, in my opinion. And if you run out of white chips, I'm not opposed to raiding the chip box for more chips. I'm just suggesting that this should only be done occasionally. I mean, the rules don't specifically say you have to increase the pot when players cash in chips, but it's alluded to. Ergo, having extra chips to hand out. And the green chips will always go back to your hand, but I'm expanding on that in a minute. Okay, so one of the very first things I think you should put together is a page or a chart for what each color of bounty chip does. It's covered in the player's handbook on page 145. I'm not gonna get into a verbatim reading of the section, but I strongly suggest you get this onto a page or two of your own, because once you start the game, your players will start spending chips, and if you have to stop the game each time they spend one so you can open your book, the game will drag. It doesn't need to be much. For example, you could type out white chip, one extra die per chip spent for rolls, gain back one wound or five wind, one bounty point, cannot use more white chips for rolls once any other color is played. It's that simple. I mean, organize it in a way that works for you, but something that simple, clipped to your screen, can be a time saver. Now for me, since I don't use a GM screen, I'm actually gonna do up a sheet and make a copy for each of my players. That way they can answer their own questions regarding chips. I also think it'd be helpful to have a chip spending chart. Put that on the same page if you can. Again, this is covered on pages 146 to 148, so I'm not gonna get into a lot of detail here. You can read it and figure out just how much info you want on your cheat sheets or if you even think it's worth it. I mean, this is one of those times where you can stick a bookmark in your player's handbook and just flip it open when the players want to spend their chips on improving their characters. After all, that's something that should only be done at the beginning or end of a session, unless you're one of those GMs who allow for these sorts of things during downtime during a session itself. For me, since I'm already going to do a handout for my players, I'm going to include this information on it because my players tend to think about this stuff when we take bathroom breaks and stuff like that, so they can be doing their own research during that downtime. All right, so I said I'd tell you what the green chips were for, and I intend to do so. They're what are called legend chips, which is why if you don't have green, use whatever color you want that isn't white, red, or blue. In fact, I've used black chips before for legend chips. These are the creme de la creme of fate chips and allow you to re-roll any die roll. The rules specifically state that you should be dropping one of these into the chip box about every three to four game sessions. Alternately, you can drop one into the box after a major milestone. I'm choosing to follow eh, roughly that second guideline. 
So for the purposes of the game we're creating, I'd drop one in after the mines because by that point they'll have handled two big situations and we'll probably go one every two major encounters running forward. But I might change my mind on that, so we'll just have to, I guess, wait and see. A legend chip, by the way, just shouldn't be given to a player. It takes the group to earn one, so everyone should have the fair chance to get it. Besides, once it's drawn and played, it goes back to the GM and back into the chip stack to once again be dropped into the chip box when the time comes. Now, there are those of you who might be wondering if you can give out red and blue chips. Absolutely. As you've already noticed, everyone in the group gets a white chip when an encounter has been handled in a positive manner. If somebody managed to do something extraordinary in handling that encounter, I'd give them a red chip instead of a white. I'll leave the definition of what extraordinary is up to you, but for me, it's going to need to be a whole lot more than just some basic problem solving. They're going to have to come up with a solution that's definitely outside the norm, and it is definitely going to have to work. I would also consider a red chip for someone who really plays into the hindrances they have. For example, one of my players, Scott, has an issue where he can hear the dead speak. He's really leaned into it a couple times, and I really should have probably given him a red chip. I didn't, but I probably should have. Listen, he tends to hoard the darn things, so I... Okay, fine, I'll give him a red chip at the next game. Pressure. Giving out blue chips is an even bigger deal for me, and it's something I very rarely do. For me, something blue chip worthy would be someone role-playing their hindrances or edges perfectly in a situation that could actually cost them, which is especially true of hindrances. Example, I've got a pacifist in my game, though I'll note that for a pacifist, he seems to do a lot of shooting. If he wants to earn a blue chip, he'd need to play that pacifist thing out until well after the bullets start flying. But you decide what you think is worthy of a red chip or a blue chip. It's your game, so you get to decide about the chips. One thing we do need to remember and understand is that no player can have more than 10 chips total on them at any given time. So, here's my rule. If drawing your three chips at the beginning of the session will put you at or over 10, I'm actually okay with that. You can continue to play and earn your chips throughout the session. However, at the end of the session, if you're still over 10, you must cash in enough chips to bring you to 9 at the very most. Fortunately, you can bank bounty points for later use, so this isn't as big a deal as you might think. And thus far, my players haven't objected to it either. So that's the fate chip situation. Be aware of it because it will come into play early. The next point I think we need to cover is the one that has given me the biggest headaches since I started running my game about a month ago. Combat. Believe me when I tell you, I have literally brought my game to a halt with my issues with the combat rules in Deadlands Classic. Fortunately for myself and for my game group, I have this podcast to produce, so I had to try to figure out a way to make getting all this stuff together in one place. For the record, the chapter that covers combat is chapter 4 of the Player's Handbook, and it starts on page 115. This chapter is ginormous, and trying to navigate the information contained within sucks up a lot of time. And, unfortunately, this isn't like D&D, where if you know your attack bonus and the opponent's armor class, you've got your target number already figured in. Alright, I've stalled long enough to avoid doing this. Let's break down what you need to know and what you're going to want to chart out. Now, before I do this, and here I go again with the stalling, I do need to point out that Shane Lacey Hensley put some really nice charts in this chapter. 
Unfortunately, there's so much information you need to know, we're going to have to come up with our own way to chart it so we can understand how it works. The very first thing we need to understand about combat in Deadlands Classic is that rounds are five seconds each. It's not really all that different from most other games, though D&D players will, I'm sure, remind me that D&D rounds are six seconds. Really? You want to argue over a second? Let's move on. This is where those decks of cards I mentioned way back in the first episode of our show come back into play. The players have one, and the GM has one. Leave the jokers in, but pull any other non-game cards that are in there so your deck is 54 cards. Make sure each deck is well shuffled, because once we start combat, they're probably not getting shuffled again for a bit. Now, I realize Deadlands doesn't technically call it initiative, but since many of you are D&D players, I'm going to use that term so we understand what we're talking about. For those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, initiative is the order in which everyone involved in a combat acts. And Deadlands is way different than D&D on this, though, so follow along closely. To start, have each player make a quickness roll and compare their total to a target of five. You will do the same thing for each bad guy or monster that's involved in the combat. Yes, just do that. Each participant automatically gets one card. Beyond that, for every success, each die with a five on it, and each raise, each die with a multiple of five, like 10, 15, and beyond, remember, dice explode here, you get another card. However, the maximum number of cards you can have in your hand without having some sort of supernatural power is five. So let's do a quick example to make sure we understand this. I've just called for quickness rolls to start combat. Let's say Bobby is rolling 3d12 for his quickness. He rolls a 12, a 5, and a 3. Toss the 3, doesn't get him anything, set the 5 to the side. That's already one extra card for him. Rerolling the 12, he gets an 8, bringing his total to 20. So he'd get one card for the 5, another for the 10, another for the 15, and another for the 20. Plus, he automatically gets a card. But wait, if we had that up, that would be six cards. So even though the numbers would show six, the max he can have is five cards. So Bobby draws five cards from the player's deck. With me so far? Now, Deadlands doesn't technically have a surprise round factored into its system. That being said, if you as the GM want to add a bit of spice to the combat, you can request that your players each make a cognition roll before things get going. If it's a situation they should be expecting trouble in, keep the target at 5. Unless they're rolling a d4 for cognition, they should be able to make that. If it's a situation where combat wouldn't be obvious, feel free to crank the target up to 11, which the text in the player's guide suggests. That allows for a bit more of a surprise factor. If the player makes the roll, they can participate in drawing cards and doing something during the first round. If they fail, they sit out the first round but get to participate in the second, provided there is a second round. And even though the rules don't specifically state this, I believe you should do the same for any human bad guys you have in the game. Follow the same rules as you would for the players. Let's do another example so we're clear. Before Bobby made his quickness roll, he was asked to roll a cognition roll to see if that band of dudes who were acting mighty strange might be up to no good. Considering the circumstances, we'll set the target at five. Unfortunately for Bobby, his character only has a single d6 for cognition, but he rolled a 5, so he got to participate in the first round. Now, obviously you should do the cognition checks before you roll quickness, but I didn't think to put it first, so I apologize. Again, I don't claim to be the world's best GM. 
I just claim to give you a bunch of my mistakes so that you can learn from them. Getting back to the cards, let's see what Bobby drew. He drew a nine of diamonds, a six of clubs, a five of clubs, a four of spades, and a two of hearts. If we were playing poker, it'd be three-fifths of the way to a flush. However, we're not playing poker, and that nine probably means he's going to be waiting a little bit to act. If anybody draws a joker, there are special rules enforced, and we'll dive into those in a moment. First, just understand that the order goes from ace all the way down to two. Technically, it goes from joker all the way down to two. Sorry. In instances where two individuals have the same number, use the suits to determine who goes before who, with the order being spades, hearts, diamonds, and clubs. And since the GM and the players each have their own decks, it is entirely possible for each side to have an action at the exact same time. It's perfectly okay, since in reality, folks do things at the exact same time all the time. Okay, let's talk about the Jokers. If a red joker comes up, that is a thing of beauty because it means the player who drew it can go at any point in the round. According to the rules, they're even allowed to interrupt another player's action or a bad guy's action to take their own. But there's a catch. The joker is only good for one round. In other words, use it or lose it, bucko. For players, there's another perk to the red joker. The player who draws it gets to pull a chip from the fate chip box. Good for them. The GM does not get this benefit. Sorry, it's for good guys only. If a black joker comes up, that's bad news. For whatever reason, the player will not be able to take an action using that card. Also, if they have a card hidden up their sleeve, which I'll get to in a minute, they have to toss that card along with the black joker. For the GM, there's a perk to the black joker. If a player draws one, the GM gets to make a draw from the fate chip box for the bad guys. Players do not get this benefit if the GM draws a black joker for the bad guys. It's only fair, I suppose. One more thing. Whichever side has the black joker drawn, at the end of the round in which the joker was drawn, that side's deck of cards gets reshuffled. That could be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on how you choose to look at it. Okay, so I just mentioned putting a card up your sleeve. What does that mean, and how can you do it? I'm going to use that two of hearts that Bobby drew for my example here. When the card order gets to twos, let's say Bobby doesn't really have any good options for actions. Rather than waste the card, he announces to me he intends to put the card up his sleeve. When he makes that announcement, he'll put the card under his fate chips or in whatever spot your group determines is where sleeved cards go. Starting with the next round, Bobby can choose to play his sleeved card whenever he wants to. Yep. He can use that too to interrupt anybody who's getting ready to take an action. Now, to interrupt an action already in progress, you have to beat the other person in an opposed quickness test. Worst case scenario is that you lose the check and you go right after the person you're trying to interrupt. A success in a raise means you get to go before the other person, and a success means you and the person you're trying to beat go at the same time. Regardless of the action, you've now played the card, so discard it. One more note on putting cards up your sleeve. You cannot put a red joker up your sleeve. Sorry. As I mentioned, they're good for the round they're drawn in only. But if you've got a sleeved card and a red joker, you can play both of them at the same time and take two actions. Yeah, we've got a lot of stuff to note out here, and we haven't even gotten to the actual shooting yet. I mean, you know, once you go through the whole round, now you take your unshuffled deck and you roll your quickness rolls and you divvy out the cards again. And you keep doing that. 
Once one deck has been completely used, you shuffle it and start it again. The process continues round by round until the conflict or whatever the situation is has been resolved. Okay, pages 118 and 119 get into things like movement, encumbrance, and tests of wills. I'm going to pass over those here because if you really need those, those are easy to have bookmarked to look up if and when you need them, and they're easy to read and understand. So, after all of that, we're up to taking actions in the round. Before your players get around to shooting things or slinging spells, if they've got one of those types in the party, they need to be aware of a few things. They need to be aware of the rate of fire on their weapons and the speed score of the spell or other power they are using. Rate of fire tells you how many times you can fire the weapon per action, while the speed score tells you how many actions it will take to complete the spell or use the power. For the record, the rate of fire for most weapons is a 1, though double action revolvers have a rate of fire of 2. Most spells and powers have a speed of 1 action, but others take longer. One other thing to remember is that each player needs to know how many rounds of ammunition their weapon holds, as well as how many rounds they've fired off. I mean, if the pistol only holds six rounds of ammo, if they fired three shots in the first round, they can't fire four in the second. Well, they can, but it would take something else. They're either going to have to pause to reload or draw another weapon. That's kind of what I was referring to. We'll get to that in a minute or two. With the background out of the way, let's get shooting. For the sake of argument, let's say Bobby goes first, and he's got himself a Colt Peacemaker pistol drawn. It's got a rate of fire of two, so that means he can take two shots for each action if he so chooses. With a bunch of bad guys in front of him, he's going to sling lead, so he needs to make his attack roll. To do that, we first have to set the target number. We start with a base of five. Next, we have to figure out what the distance is between Bobby and his target. Now, each class of weapon has a standard range, which is listed on a handy chart on page 120. For the record, and again, we need to give Pinnacle their proper credit, the ranges are 5 for Derringers, 10 for pistols and shotguns, and 20 for rifles. So once we know how much distance in yards is between Bobby and his target, we divide that number by the range number rounding down. Add that to the base target number, and you've got your target number to shoot for. Literally, in this case. Also understand that if you're using a battle mat, each square or hex is two yards, just so we're all on the same page. So, Bobby's about five yards away from his target. Five divided by ten is one half, which added to the five gives us a target of 5.5. But we round down, so the target stays a five. There are a few other things to take into account as well. If Bobby was walking, he'd subtract two from his roll. If he was running, he subtracts four. If by chance his target is larger than normal, like twice as big, he's adding one to his roll because, come on, a bigger target like that's easier to hit. On the flip side, a target half the size of a normal person causes you to subtract one from the roll. If the target is moving faster than a pace of 20, subtract four from your roll. And finally, visibility and lighting can play a part as well. Rather than chart all of that out, just use the handy chart on page 121 because why should we reinvent the wheel here? So. Bobby's five yards from his target, which is a normal-sized human who is standing relatively still and is easy to see. His target number is a five. He's got four D10 in his deafness and two dots in the shooting pistols area, so he'll be rolling those four D10 and adding two to his totals. He rolls a six, a six, a two, and a one. Obviously, we toss the two and the one because they don't hit the target number. The sixes are exactly the same, so toss one and add the bonus of two to the other, giving us a total of eight. 
That, folks, is going to be a hit. For the record, if Bobby was choosing to shoot twice in this round, he'd roll for the second shot after we resolved the first. Also, if Bobby hadn't hit with his rolls, he'd have had the option to spend a fate chip to try to improve his roll, if he so chose. However, with five actions in this round, unless the odds are just overwhelmingly against him and his group, he's probably going to take a miss in that case and move on. So, since Bobby's shot hit, we now have to figure out what he hit. Yes, Bobby could have chosen to call his shot to try to hit a specific area of the body. But, that has to be done before the rolls, and each area comes with a penalty to the roll, and there's a handy chart on page 124 that has those on it. Since we didn't call the shot, we now have to roll a d20 to figure out where our shot hit. For the record, that chart is on page 132 of the Player's Guide. Bobby got lucky on his roll. He rolled a 20. That means he hit his target in the noggin, and that's going to be... That's going to be bad for this poor sucker. One thing I do want to note, even though it is listed on the chart in the book, is that for each raise the player gets on their shoot and roll, they can adjust the hit location by one number either up or down. A raise in this case would have been multiples of 5, 10, 15, 20. Obviously, we didn't have any raises, so that's not an option here. And quite frankly, I don't think Bobby would be making an adjustment anyway. Time for damage. A Colt Peacemaker does 3d6 damage, so Bobby would roll those dice and add them together. For the record, damage dice explode just like everything else. Bobby rolled a 6, a 4, and a 1. Rerolling that 6, he got another 6. Rerolling that, he got a 1. So Bobby's total is 18. But, and the rules do state this, a hit to the noggin allows for two more damage dice. Bobby rolls those. He got a two and a three, bringing his total to 23. So the dude takes 23 points of damage, right? <laughs> Wrong. When I said Deadlands was different from every other game, I meant it. We take that 23 and we divide it by the character's size, which is six. 23 divided by six is three, since we round down. This means our bad guy took three levels of wounds to his head and has what is called a critical wound to his noggin. For the record, the body is divided into two arms, two legs, guts, gizzards, and noggin. On the chart, it has an upper and lower guts, but that's more for description than for anything else. An individual can take a maximum of five levels of wounds in any single area before they pass out or before the area becomes completely useless. That being said, there are consequences to taking damage. There are two pretty good charts on pages 138 and 139 that lay out what a level 3 wound would be called and what its modifier would be. For the record, this noggin shot is considered serious, yeah, no kidding, and the bad guy gets a minus three modifier to everything they do moving forward. They're also bleeding, again, no kidding, and losing one wind per round. There's one other thing we have to do, and that's determine how much wind our bad guy lost. See, anytime someone gets hit with an attack, they lose wind, even if they don't take a wound level, which would happen if the damage divided by the size is less than one. It's 1d6 per wound level, so for our bad guy, in this case, Bobby would roll 3d6. Again, he got a 4, a 4, and a 3 for 11 wind. Since our bad guy only has 14 wind, he can't take a lot more of that before he passes out. And that's the key here. Everybody should be passing out from being hit and or from blood loss. Death is not automatic in Deadlands. And I know where you're about to go here. But if I shoot somebody in the head, chances are pretty darn good they're going to die. I'm not going to argue with that, because in the real world, you would have a very valid point. However, this isn't the real world, so things work a bit differently. 
I have played with players who want to argue that it wouldn't work like that in real life or, but this is how it would work in the real world, so it should work the same way here. Again, while your argument is probably valid, we're dealing with a fantasy world. In other words, it's a game, it's not the real world, and there are rules for how things go in this world we're playing in. Don't shoot the messenger here, kids. Anyway, Bobby's got four more actions in this round, and he's going to keep shooting. Chances are pretty good he'll drop this bad guy at some point, and he'll move on to the next. Now, I know I just said that the idea is drop and injure. That being said, as GM, you do have the ability to just flat out say that there's no way an individual can take that amount of damage and live. That's fine if you do that, but you need to be fair and consistent. Remember that if you do that when the players shoot bad guys, you really need to be that way when bad guys shoot players. I mean, the rules are there to benefit both sides, so if you're going to fudge them, be consistent. Then again, it's your game, so run it the way you feel the most comfortable. Now, I haven't covered all of the varied rules for combat because shotguns, gatling guns, and explosives have their own sets of rules, and there's always the chance things break down into a knife fight. Chapter 4 breaks all of this down, and if you think you're going to need it, add it to the notes you're taking. Also, I said something about, you know, rate of fire and running out of bullets. You can, on one of your turns in a round, choose to load, reload, actually, your weapon. You can reload one round per action. So, if I spend a card, I can reload a round. If I've got another action, I can then shoot that round. Quick load cylinders are also available, and there is a target number that you have to roll when you use one of those. We'll talk about those another time, because this is going to be a really long episode. So, let's go ahead and move on, because I've still got a lot of ground to cover. Like I said, we're, we're running long. When everything is said and done, chances are good that somebody's going to need some healing. For the record, anybody can heal wind. All it takes is a medicine roll with a target number of three. The thought is that whomever is making the roll is cleaning wounds, doing some basic bandaging, and making sure everything's, you know, like I said, cleaned up and organized. If you've got wounds, you've got a problem. The person trying to help you has to actually have the medicine general aptitude. And even then, they can only help with light and heavy wounds. Anything more severe requires somebody with medicine surgery. Here's the kicker. You've got one hour to get those wounds treated. There's a difficulty chart on page 143 that lays out the rolls that are needed. Each success drops the wound by a level. If, by chance, something is maimed like an arm or a leg that exceeded five wounds, it'll still be unusable, but it should at least stop bleeding. If the guts or noggin exceeded five wound levels, that's death. I know what I said before, but trust me on this. After the hour has passed, the only way to heal wounds is either by arcane means or time. The example the book uses is to remind you that once a broken bone has started to heal itself, it can't be fixed by a doctor unless it's rebroken. So once the hour's up, time is what you need. And I sort of misspoke a moment ago. If you've got a maimed body part, it can be healed, but only by arcane means. And if that fails, it will never work again. It will be a permanent wound. There's one more thing we need to hit on here. If your character dies, that's not necessarily the end for the character. Should this situation befall your group, make sure either the GM's deck or player's deck of cards is reshuffled, then have the player in question draw one card, plus one card for every level of grit they have. If the player draws a Joker, their character will come back as a Harrowed. Chapter 10 in the Player's Guide covers Harrowed characters, and I'd recommend you at least be familiar with that if you're going to go that way. 
I would also argue that as a GM, you could nerf this system if you wanted to. If you believe the character in question is one that the spirits would want to bring back, because it's the type that could really cause havoc in the world if a mana tile got full control over it, then skip the card draw and tell the player their character's coming back. In my game, Scott's character is the one I would do this for. He's nuttier than a Christmas fruitcake, and the way the character behaves is just the type that Manitow would want to get behind. So, if Scott's character dies, he's definitely coming back harrowed. The other four? Eh, not so much. I'm going to make him draw for it. Okay, there's one other topic I wanted to cover in this show, and that's how to create your NPCs. If you've got a concept you want for an NPC, you can feel free to create it from scratch, just like you would a PC. I mean, the process doesn't really take that long, and for an epic bad guy, like someone who's intended to be a thorn in the side of the players for a while, I would definitely do that. But what about the random bandits and baddies your group might run into? I think I've mentioned this before, but it bears repeating. There are several character concepts in the middle of the player's guide. They start with Buffalo Girl and end with Texas Ranger. Whatever you might need at a moment's notice, one of those templates should fit the bill. Pick one, make any adjustments you feel you might want to make, or don't if you feel fine with them the way they are, and run. It gives you a campaign's worth of bad guys at your fingertips, and you can spend more time fleshing out the other parts of your game night. There's also a ton of resources online you can utilize, including those from Pinnacle's official website, which is peginc.com. There's also a ton of fan forums that throw out different ideas and concepts you can use for your game. If you're interested, throw it in your Google machine and see what works for you. Other than what we've already discussed, I'd make sure you've got something to use for a damage tracker. I use a small dry erase board that has a small stand that sits on the corner of the table I sit at. Plenty of dice, your pens, and whatever else you need to set the mood for your game. With everything we've built so far, plus what we've talked about today, if you haven't already started your Deadlands Classic campaign, you really should be ready to start tonight. As always, if you've got any questions or concerns about anything I've brought up on this show, hit me up and I will do my very best to help you out. So we ran out of time to get to more campaign building this week, but that just means we get to do more work next time. Yay! Also next time, I'm going to present the first campaign feedback. I'll walk you through the first night of the campaign with my group, and we'll look at how it went. I'll explain what worked and what didn't, and I'll try to offer my thoughts on how to fix things to avoid you having my problems in your game. Spoiler alert. Nine times out of ten, I'm the problem that needs fixing. Just saying. As we wrap up, I wanted to take a moment to encourage you to check out our other podcast, Role Playing History. In that show, I take a game, game company, or creator and dig into their history in a half-hour format. This week's show breaks down the game Seventh Sea, as well as its creator, John Wick. I would also note that Roleplaying History is just a few episodes away from celebrating its one-year anniversary, so if you haven't listened before, now would be a great time to start. Roleplaying History is available wherever you get your podcasts. I also wanted to thank each and every one of you for the kind words I've gotten concerning this podcast. I know the format's a little different for this type of show, but we're getting a generally positive response to what we're doing, and that encourages me to keep doing more. In fact, I want to know what game you'd like to see me give the campaign build-along treatment to next. It's not that we're ending the Deadlands game anytime soon, but look, all games eventually come to an end, and when that happens, we're going to want to do another game, and I would rather do a game that you would like to play. So, if you've got a suggestion, hit me up in the usual spots, and if we've got enough different suggestions, maybe we'll throw a poll up or something. 
mean, we got a website and everything, so that would work. Bad GM's Campaign Build Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Follow us on Facebook, Bad GM Productions. Twitter, at Bad GMP. Our YouTube channel is Bad GM Productions. We have a Twitch channel, Bad GM. And you can email us at badgmproductions at gmail.com. The website is getting there, so check us out, badgmproductions.com. We'll have both of our podcasts available from the website. At least that's the concept, so you will have a one-stop shop. Also, I know all of the socials aren't quite up and running like I wanted them to yet, and that's because we're a two-humanoid company over here, and our full-time jobs and other responsibilities are kind of getting in the way of getting things done. We do appreciate your patience with us, and we'll have the systems running properly as soon as possible. Alrighty then, next week we do our first campaign debriefing and then we'll get back into building some more of our Deadlands campaign. I'm looking forward to finally getting to tell you how things have been going, so I hope you're going to join us for that. Until next time, this is the Bad GM Wayne Davis for Bad GM's Campaign Build Law.